From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Adrenoleukodystrophy, commonly known as ALD, is a potentially fatal genetic disorder that affects approximately 1 in 17,000 newborns. If untreated, children with ALD can go on to develop CALD, or cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy, which results in severe loss of neurologic function and eventually death. Early detection is key to halting the progression of ALD to CALD. An early indicator of disease progression is vision problems, specifically difficulty with complex visual scenarios, like finding a person in a crowd or picking out a single pen among a jar of pens. Many children with ALD are misdiagnosed with behavior problems, including ADD and ADHD. With these misdiagnoses, critical time can be lost to begin life-saving treatment. With a pilot grant from the Harvard Catalyst Translational Innovator, doctors Lotfi Marabet of Mass Ioneer and Florian Eichler of MGH are using virtual reality and imaging techniques combined with their respective expertise in ophthalmology and neurology to speed detection. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Marabet about his work. Dr. Lotfi Marabet is an associate scientist at Mass Ioneer and an associate professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Marabet, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Your research focuses on how the brain adapts to loss of sight. Um, you've been developing some game-based strategies to help specifically blind adolescents. Can you tell us about some of that work? Sure. So our lab focuses on trying to understand how the brain adapts to blindness and visual impairment, both of eye-related causes as well as brain-related causes. So in this direction, we develop a series of assistive technology platforms to try to help and improve compensatory skills. And we use virtual reality to do this as well as game-based strategies also. We also combine that with advanced brain imaging techniques because that allows us also to look inside the brain and see how performance and these compensatory behaviors are related to changes in the brain as well. So a very important uh, area of work that we that we really focus on is trying to create assessment tools and training tools um, that are what's referred to as ecologically valid. So in other words, uh, assessment tools that represent or accurately simulate real-world tasks. And this is actually quite important because we know that traditional ophthalmic measures, things like visual acuity, for example, are very limited in terms of telling us how a person functions in the real world. So we need ways to simulate or to assess how a person with visual impairment uses their vision in real world settings. And that's where virtual reality comes in. So it allows us to close that gap by creating these real world settings, these simulations, where we can test performance in real world settings and also use Use that as a way to train these compensatory behaviors in a safe and controlled manner. So you're awarded a pilot grant from the Harvard Catalyst Translational Innovator. 
to improve outcomes for people with a genetic disorder called cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy, or ALD. Can you tell us what ALD is? Yeah, so again, ALD, or adrenoleukodystrophy, is a specific genetic disorder that affects about 1 in 17,000 newborns. It's related to a specific mutation called the ABCD1 gene, and this mutation leads to abnormal adrenal and nervous tissue development and function. Cerebral ALD or CALD is a subtype, and it's really the most severe phenotype of the of the disease. And this is seen particularly in children uh, who are young adolescents, twelve uh, or older. In the early stages of the disease, we see severe demyelination, in other words, a lack of development of neurons um, in the brain. And this is particularly in regions of the brain, uh, posterior regions of the brain, that are responsible for visual perception. As the disease progresses, uh, there's loss of language functions, seizures also incur, there's paralysis, and ultimately there's death within about 10 years uh, after the diagnosis. So it's ultimately a fatal disease. So the interesting thing is the fact that the earliest manifestations of CALD seem to be vision related. That's, that's typically what children will first complain about or the first symptoms that we, we tend to observe. And in particular, they seem to have problems processing complex visual scenes and uh, spatial problems processing uh, issues. We also know that in the early stages, these, uh, these patients typically, they, they, we don't see these visual deficits showing up in classic ophthalmic examination, like visual acuity, for example, assessments. So we need a way to pick up on these symptoms and complaints in a way that, that's, that, that is more robust or more sensitive than classic uh, ophthalmic testing. The important thing also what we notice is that as these symptoms progress, often it's misdiagnosed. Often these children are considered, for example, to have other attentional issues like ADHD or perhaps they're just you know, clumsy or something like that, when in reality that it's, it's a visual processing problem. And we now want to come up with ways to characterize that in a more uh, effective way. So you, you said that um, typical ophthalmic testing can't pick up these vision differences. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, why like a standard vision test doesn't pick up this, uh, this issue? Yeah, so maybe I should be a little bit more clear about that. That's not to say that standard ophthalmic testing cannot pick this up. It just cannot pick it up in the early stages. So by the time the child does manifest with uh, ophthalmic or vision problems that we could pick up on a standard eye test, for example, often it's too late. The idea is to pick up things that are much more subtle uh, when the child is already starting to, to notice things are not quite right. So very, very often, for example, the child will say, you know, I have, I have problems problems following people, you know, in a crowd or, 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 you know, maintaining my attention in the classroom, they go and see an eye doctor and then sure enough, they pass the eye, you know, they read the eye chart without a problem. So in other words, we need a mechanism to pick up on these subtle visual processing problems sooner than what we would normally get from a standard eye test. Right. And so that's key to treatment because if you can initiate treatment at the early stage, you can halt the progression of the disorder. Um, and I don't know if you mentioned it, but this, you know, it's a serious disorder. You talked about demyelination of the neurons, which is, you know, I mean, maybe you could describe that a little more, but basically the neurons can't send signals to different parts of the body and, but maybe you could explain a little bit more about that. 
I, I think you, you characterized it perfectly. That's exactly right. So demyelination or myelination, I should say, is an extremely important uh, uh, process in terms of brain cell development because it's, it acts as an insulator. It's what allows a brain cell to fire properly. And when that myelination doesn't occur, the cell does not fire properly. And again, it's interesting that this demyelination seems to be focally localized within occipital and posterior regions of the brain, which we know are responsible for spatial visual processing. As the disease progresses, we know that this demyelination extends to other areas that include language, motor function, cognition, uh, and so on. And so your project or the grant you received is looking at um, improving detection. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how ALD is treated because um, from what I understand, there are good treatments for it, but again, it's about getting started at an early stage. So could you tell us a little bit about how ALD is treated? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a treatment for CLD and it's called ex vivo lentiviral gene therapy. Um, and it's, uh, there's some very strong early clinical evidence that this approach is extremely successful in halting disease progression. Um, Dr. Florian Eichler, who's, who's the collaborator on this project, he's the director of the MGH leukodystrophy clinic, which currently is running the largest uh, gene therapy clinical trial uh, worldwide. The caveat to this treatment is that the timing is absolutely crucial. The timing needs to be as early as possible to halt the progression. But again, it can't be too early because you're putting the the patient at undue risk and it can't be too late because once the progression is so far along, it's very, very difficult to to halt that progress or even reverse that process. So timing is an extremely important issue. So again, the critical gap in this particular scenario is coming up with a way to detect this pre-symptomatic visual processing uh, defects or impairments. Um, And at the same time, correlating that with subtle changes at the level of the brain as well, looking how the brain is wired, its connectivity, how the brain activates as well, beyond what we can do with just standard MRI testing as well. So there's there's really two aspects to the study. The first is assessing and being able to detect these visual deficits, and second, looking at these fine details and changes uh, at the level of the brain. And right now, the fact that there isn't really a robust uh, mechanism or a more sensitive mechanism, I should say, is, is, is really what I think hindering uh, the fact that treatment uh, can save lives um, and neurological function, obviously. So we, we can do it. The, the treatment does exist, but we need to fine tune it in a manner where we can actually optimize that treatment window. You hinted at or you described sort of the, the dual aims of mm-hmm. this project. Could you give us a little more information about the project itself? Um, I know there's a component of uh, VR mm-hmm. piece to it, and that's work you've done previously, uh, as you said, with um, some game-based strategies that you've, mm-hmm. you've been looking at. And you've also worked with imaging. So maybe talk mm-hmm. about sort of the specifics of the project and how this um, assessment is going to work. Yeah. So from the virtual reality standpoint, you know, in our experience, using virtual reality is is very effective because we can create these ecologically valid these these scenarios that that simulate real world situations. So, examine, uh, you know, uh, um, imagine for a second that you you find yourself in a busy hallway where there's lots of people walking around and so on. We've created a simulation where an observer is standing from a first person perspective, looking through uh, this hallway where people are walking around. 
And the task is to find a target, which in this particular case is the principal of a, a fictitious school that's walking in the corridor. And what we do is we change the number of people who are in the crowd in order to make the crowd you know, busier and, uh, and, and, and more action going on. The task of the observer is to, is to observe the visual scene, locate the principal, and track them as they're moving in the visual scene. And we use eye tracking uh, methodology to, to see where they're looking at all times. And what we find, and perhaps this isn't surprising, is that the more people in the crowd, the harder it is to, to find the target and, and to track the target. What's interesting is that when we test this in adolescents with CALD, their performance is actually much worse. So in other words, as the crowd gets bigger and bigger, they, much, they have a much harder time finding the target and tracking the target. And we think that this sensitivity to, to task demands is, is the signal that we're looking for to pick up on these subtle visual impairments that otherwise we wouldn't get with, say, an, an acuity test. So that's really where the virtual reality comes in. It seems to give us this opportunity to, to find right away these visual impairments that we're trying to pick up on. The second piece that you mentioned about the neuroimaging is to try to correlate, you know, very fine grain and subtle changes at the level of the brain with these visual impairments. And we use two techniques to do that. The first is what's referred to as diffusion-based imaging, and that allows us to look at the white matter connections of the brain, so how the brain is connected with itself. And the second is functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allows us to look at activation of the brain and this on this particular task. So we see which parts of the brain are active and how that activation is different compared to individuals with neurotypical development. So we have multiple signals to look at, at the level of visual performance and at the level also of how the brain is wired and activates. Putting all that together, we think we, come up, we can come up with a more sensitive uh, uh, way to assess these individuals to figure out the optimal timing of treatment. Mm -hmm. So maybe how do you put that all together? Like, what does that actually look like? So you have the data from the the game or the simulation, yeah. you have the yeah. diffusion imaging, you have the functional, functional MRI yeah. imaging. Yeah. yeah. So then, I mean, maybe this is too complicated to no, explain. No, no, not at all. I guess I'm sort of thinking of like, what's the second half of the process? How does that look? Yeah, so once we have the virtual reality assessments uh, and we're able to characterize the visual performance and we then add the neuroimaging from the connectivity and activation standpoint, we take that data and we compare it to neurotypical controls. So individuals who don't have obviously the disease. So that's that's an important piece right away is to differentiate how kids with CALD uh, are different. The second piece is that we also have a subgroup of population in the in the CALD group who are getting the, the genetic genetic treatment. So we are following those who are getting treatment versus those who are not. And then again, using a pre-post assessment, understanding how these outcomes are different. So what signals, for example, are more useful in determining the kids who did well with treatment versus those who didn't get uh, treatment? And I would say the third piece is to use those outcomes against standards like a standard vision test or standard MRI to see if our outcomes are actually better at picking up those individuals uh, and, the, and the timing of treatment versus using, again, these standard measures. So there's there's multiple facets to the study. Great. Yeah, I think that, that answers my question. Was that helpful? Okay. Yeah, okay. just wondering, because, um, yeah, you know, you're looking at the seeing which of these or which combination of these methods provides right. a better detection 
the better right. signal. That's right. right. And, the, and the kids who are progressing without treatment are really the baseline. So we see the natural course of the disease versus the kids who get the treatments, we get an idea, do our markers pick up on this? So for example, does this visual impairment level off or actually get better? Do these changes at the level of the brain stabilize? Um, this will allow us, again, multiple ways to, to assess these individuals in a more uh, comprehensive manner. And again, if you benchmark that against standard measures like acuity, like uh, MRI image or standard MRI imaging, we'll get a sense of whether or not we can pick this up uh, faster. You're working with another researcher on this project you, you mentioned, um, and this is not your area of expertise, right. CALD. Mm -hmm. um, you're a you study vision and how the brain adapts to changes in vision. Right. Um, and I think you, the, the story of how you became collaborators is interesting because yeah. it was sort of, you know, one of those uh, serendipity moments of going to a conference. And so yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about how that collaboration started and how you're working together. That's exactly right. Uh, CALD is, is, is not a population that we've had experience working with in the past. As you said, our, our expertise is really working with visual impairment in general, again, based on ocular causes as well as brain-based causes. And Dr. Florian Eichler is the director, as I mentioned, of the MGH Leukodystrophy Clinic. And he has extensive experience with the disease, and he's the principal investigator of this large-scale uh, clinical trial, as I mentioned. He was really the first one to, to recognize that there was a gap uh, in our understanding and a gap in in terms of how we were assessing these kids. Um, through the scientific community, through local presentations and so on, he had a sense that the way that we approached assessing visual impairment could translate to his population. So he reached out, became aware of our work, uh, and we did some pilot work with uh, some, of, uh, some of his early patients. And indeed, we were able to detect that there was the significant change in performance in, in, the, in this group compared to neurotypical development. And we figured that this could very well be a tractable uh, approach to do so. I, I do also want to identify other collaborators. There's doctors uh, Chris Bennett and Karina Bauer from our lab who are responsible for the virtual reality development as well as the neuroimaging. Um, so it's, it's a really great example of a project that needs multiple pieces and you know this Harvard Catalyst grant allows us to come together in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have this collaborative opportunity uh, otherwise. Talk a little bit about the Catalyst grant and how sort of pilot grant opportunities like this can help researchers that are doing things like you, like, mm -hmm. you know, sort of atypical collaborations or yeah. working with newer technology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think of standard funding mechanisms like the NIH, for example, or perhaps the, the Department of Defense, other foundations like, uh, you know, private foundations as well, typically you either need a substantial amount of uh, preliminary data to develop a large scale program, or if you're looking for example, support from certain foundations, they have a very specific call that they're looking for, specific diseases or specific uh, approaches. So sometimes what you're trying to do just doesn't fit with, with current mechanisms. I think what something like Harvard Catalyst allows us to do is take these sort of bold exploratory approaches where we think we have a good idea, bring people together who typically would not necessarily work together on more sort of traditional um, uh, funding mechanisms allow us to explore if the idea is indeed solvent and then you know collect that substantial preliminary data that's necessary to take that to a much larger formal scale such as the NIH.
Mm-hmm. And so what is the goal once this pilot study um, is finished? What's the next step? What's the ultimate goal? Well, my hope is that we can validate that indeed this approach uh, allows us to, to hone in and optimize this treatment window on an individual basis. As I mentioned, once we demonstrate this, we feel that we can, we can capture the signal that we're looking for. The question now, of course, is timing, and how does that compare with standard metrics that we have right now? Uh, you can think of a situation, for example, if you were making your determination of when a child was going to get treatment based solely on standard MRI imaging, you know, perhaps that child has access to the imaging, you know, every four months or every six months or perhaps even once a year. If, for example, we're able to benchmark that our virtual reality task is picking up on these deficits, this is something they could easily do on a weekly basis at home, for example. And we would track that data. We could imagine a scenario where we see, you know, a successive trend of decrease, and that would be the signal to bring the family in to do more formal workup, for example, and then have that conversation that this could very well be the right time to pursue treatment. Right. And so for people who are in a a location that doesn't afford them easy access to a medical center like in Boston, um, these, and what are these, maybe like how intense are these VR systems? Is it, you know, I mean, I know consumer VR has gotten (laughs) a lot more portable and and, uh, wieldy. So is it, like standard off the shelf hardware or is it something you it's actually it's actually interesting because a lot of the vr technology that's available today comes from the gaming industry so um you know we use a platform for example called unity which is freely available and a lot of people use this to develop games uh, and so on and we use this like i said for our purposes it's quite nice because once you develop the platform you can package it and it's essentially you know uh, an executable file that you can send to someone and the package opens and and runs the test uh in a manner that allows you to collect data Data, send it to a, a file that can be saved and then the patient can send it to you. Um, the interesting also uh, thing to think about is certainly we're in the, in, the, in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So a lot of things to think about is we may very well be in a situation where regardless of what of, of um, disease or condition you're working with, we may very well need to continue with mechanisms of remote testing as well as solving the issues of, of privacy and consent and so on. So we're, we're a little bit fortunate in the sense that we have an approach that we would like to develop from a remote platform and currently in a situation where now there's a mechanism that exists that allows us to do that. Hmm. Could you see this VR platform being useful for other diagnostics? I, I would hope so. I mean, as I said, we, we look at visual impairments in general. So we work with a large population that has what's called cerebral visual impairments, or CVI. And these are typically children who are born with some sort of complication, either prematurity or perhaps some sort of accident uh, that occurs during pregnancy or birth. And typically these children uh, have developmental issues, particularly also at the level of visual impairments. So we use these virtual reality platforms, one, to assess them, to make sure we have a good understanding of what what their deficits are. And our hope is that moving forward, this becomes a platform for eventual training. So we use this system, for example, to see what scenarios are they, do they find most challenging? What situations uh, are their visual system uh, most likely to break down? What cues could we use to make the visual task easier? So for example, if we lower the complexity of the visual scene, if we increase colors or use of saliency or, or simplify the visual scene, do we find that performance 
performance improves. So it allows us a way to run a simulation in a controlled manner to come up with cues that would ultimately or hopefully translate into the classroom and, and the real world. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.